0: Go with me to Acts 5, okay? Now, I want to bring bring us kind of up to date, whether you've been here or not, uh, in a little bit. You ever heard the name William Wilberforce? Okay? At, he became a Christian at the age of 26, and he was already, by that time, in the British par- Parliament, which I find intriguing, at 26 years old. Um, um, he soon became the issue in his life was that he became a vocal, and the word vocal is really important here, opponent of slavery. Um, He um, decided to speak up for the cause of freedom. And he devoted the rest of his life to passing laws that first outlawed the slave trade, that was about 1807. And then he outlawed, and then helped get it to the point where in the British Empire, slavery was outlawed, Outlawed altogether. Now I find this intriguing. That was 1833. That was the year that William Wilberforce died. Isn't that interesting? His life's work was kind of over by then. Um, uh, maybe other names come to your mind when you think of people that have that have had to speak out or speak up for a cause here in America. We think sometimes of Patrick Henry in the in the American Colonial Day. Uh, Maybe you think of Gandhi. Both of them were speaking up for national freedom. Uh, maybe you think of Martin Luther King Jr., whose cause was civil rights. But the issue was when they saw a situation that demanded a voice, they knew they had to speak up. Well, in by the time we get to Acts 5, uh, we're already dealing with a couple, and, and it's more than a couple, but they're a representative a couple of the apostles who just decided that regardless of what they're being told to do, by the government even. They had to speak up. Uh, now, uh, let me bring us up to date just for a second. Peter and John had healed a crippled beggar at the gate of the temple and uh, and they proclaimed Jesus to the crowd there. So if you remember that, that was in Acts 3. And if you remember, um, um, the, the beggar asked them for alms and they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I unto thee. Why don't you stand up and walk? And he began to dance. And uh, he was a problem for those uh, religious leaders who, um, um, who, became, who were looking to discredit Christianity. And this guy was a credit to Christianity. And uh, oh, by the way, while, while they had a crowd gathered, because of our, our formerly crippled fellow was running and dancing everywhere, while they had a crowd gathered in the temple courts, uh, Peter decided to go ahead and preach. Kind of sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, uh, and thousands were beginning to come to faith. Well, that was in chapter 3. Um, they uh, were called in, Peter and John were called in before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And they were told to stop speaking about Jesus as the Messiah. And their answer basically was, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. So they rejoined the other believers, we talked about that the other day, and the place where they were meeting was shaken and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them there, and they all began to speak boldly. Well, then kind of the next story um, in this period of time is um, uh, oppositions continue to mount. So um, they continue to speak, they're arrested again, They're put in, this time they're put in jail, but an angel of God opens the, the jail doors. And uh, uh, guess what? They went right back where they were, where they got arrested, and started speaking again. So the Jewish religious authorities, uh, they, uh, uh, when they sent for them, they found out the cell was empty. And uh, somebody reported to them that they were preaching again right back in the same place where they'd been arrested. Um, so they gather together and that's where we're going to pick up here in chapter five. Uh, we're going to start here in verse 27, but, uh, they gather this council of leaders back together that we know as the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, and they gather them together. They're just, what are we going to do to stop these guys from talking about Jesus, the Messiah? I find that a really intriguing question. Now, my question to you is, um, has God ever prompted you to speak up about something? And what did you do about that prompting? Um, And what was the result of you either going with or ignoring that prompting? I, for one, and I think all of us are glad that Peter and John went with the prompting of the Holy Spirit to continue to speak, even though uh, they're The religious authorities around them and governmental authorities were telling them to shut up. The reason that we are here today is because they continued to speak. All right, Bob, if I can prevail on you, would you go to verse 27 and read down through, um, actually, read through 29, stop there, would you? Okay, we're going to stop right there for a second, then we'll we'll skip ahead in just a little bit. The Jewish Jewish Ruling Council, there were about 70 of them. They included the high priest and his assistant and about uh, 69 others, okay? Uh, They were from uh, kind of all of the parties within Judaism. They met every day, and they kind of met as a Supreme Court, okay? Uh, Their decisions were binding on the entire nation, uh, there was a bit of an issue, certainly quite a bit of an issue in their day because they had supreme ecclesiastical authority. You know what I mean by that? It means they had religious authority over the nation, but the Romans had governmental authority. So they had a little there there was a kind of a constant conflict there, and they tried their best to live in peace when they could. Well, they've already threatened the apostles. It, and it's time now to render a verdict. What are we going to do with these guys? How are we going to make them stop? Now, as you read verse 27, what are they wanting to, them to stop doing? By the word by the way the word preaching goes in that first blank. They're preaching, but what is it that what is it about their preaching that's bugging the 70? Huh? It's the name. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. What are they preaching about? There are a lot of preachers that preach a lot of stuff. But isn't it all important what we're preaching about? They're preaching about the name of Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. The 70 are not willing to accept that. And so they're saying, you guys got to stop talking about this. So far, they won't. Can I tell you? They never did stop. And I, for one, am really glad about that. Now, so they've got to make a decision about those who are preaching and wouldn't stop preaching. Look back just to page, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, if you remember. Here's what happened. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together. Here they were again. Annas, the high priest, there's your high priest. He was there, Caiaphas, that's his father-in-law, and a former high priest, and Alexander, who was another uh, one of the one of the high priests, a former high priest, and all who were of the high priestly descent. So it was kind of a political appointment at times. And so there were several high priests. They were all there along with the rest of the 70. And um, and then let's go back here. And and, and so as they gathered, here's this group. They're trying to decide, what are we going to do to make these guys shut up? Now, their answer in verse 28, their beginning of this, is really stinky to me. What about it is stinky as you read it? All and they feign and you hear what Joe said, there, every one of them have blood on their hands, and they're feigning in innocence. Whose blood is on their hands? The Savior's, right? And, and what they say here in verse 28 is, uh, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this man it's talking about, that word man ought to be capitalized because they're talking about the man, all right? They're talking about Jesus. You're trying to bring this man's blood on us. Uh, the guilt of his blood on us. So the word that goes in your blank there is the innocence of the rulers is false. Now, let's, let's read in a couple of places here. Would somebody be our uh, Matthew scholar? John, I see you over there. Would you mind to go to Matthew? I'm going to have you read all three of those passages in Matthew in just a second, okay? Um, um, but let's, you and I go back to 418, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So we've got this, we've got this, um, they're saying, we told you not to do this. But they're forgetting. It's interesting. They call them together and they say, we told you not to speak. But they've forgotten that Peter said, Sorry, we're not gonna do that. Am I right? Either they've forgotten or it's just, okay, we told these guys to shut up, but did you forget that the big fisherman in front of you said, We're not gonna do that? And so they went right back to doing what, uh, they forgot what Peter had told them, I guess. Now, the question I've got here is, are they innocent of blood? Now, uh, John, would you go to 26, uh, Matthew 26, 66, and we're just going to kind of read two of these, two or three of these together. What did he he of this is the same group, same group, Caiaphas, Annas, and their band of merry men, same group, okay? Go on to 27, 20. Okay? Who is it? Same group. Okay, John, if you'd go one more place to 2725. Isn't it interesting that they said, the same leaders, the same, the same voice box here, who says, let this blood be on us and on our children, a few months later are saying, Wait a minute, there's no blood on our hands. Isn't that interesting? How soon we forget. Or is it, or is it, that aren't we all as humans very, very good at rationalization? Now, how how severe is this problem of rationalization about my own sin? It's severe enough that the greatest crime that was ever committed in the history of humanity, the death of the sinless Son of God, was rationalized by a few months later. They forgot that a few months before they had said, let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. And now just a few weeks later they're saying, hey, we, we're innocent. Wow. You know, even way back in the Old Old Testament, the Bible says, there is none innocent, no, not even one. Well, you and I know the truth is, there is one who lived an innocent life. And he was put to death death by this crew. And yet, they're claiming innocence. That's the worst kind, wouldn't you say, of rationalization and feigned innocence? Now, if, if you look at verse 29, I think what the issue is here, is that there is a difference between what the council has commanded and what God has commanded? Uh, the the word I could the only word I could fit in that line. I really wanted to put the word contradictory in there, but I ran out of space. Okay, so contrary is the word I put in there. the The issue is that the councils' command and God's are contrary or contradictory. Okay. Uh, they're just not the same. Now, let's go back over to Matthew. Would somebody go to Matthew 23, and I want you to read verse 2 and 3. I find it really in- intriguing here, but Jesus predicts this is going to happen. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. Somebody got it? Did Jesus tell them to break the law? No. No. In fact, I love it. He says, uh, "Go ahead and do what they what they stand for. Just don't do what they do." <laughs> Isn't it interesting? And in another place, we're going to look at in a minute. He's predicting this. Okay. Uh, I'm a little confused sometimes. I'm not confused at all. I'm just disturbed sometimes because uh, already, you know, by the end of of um, by the end of Fourth of July, Halloween stuff is that, you know. <laughs> And it's certainly out now. Christmas, Christmas stuff is that I'm sure. I haven't seen a whole lot of that, but I'm sure it is. But, you know, the Halloween stuff is out. And uh, so, you know, we're going to use this October 31st thing as an excuse to eat way too much candy corn and, um, and, you know, and to dress up like all kinds of hobgoblins and do all that kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm, I promise I'm not a naysayer. I'm not, I'm not a killjoy. But what should we be celebrating on October 31st? Let me tell you what happened on the original October 31st that should be celebrated, okay? There was a guy, he was a monk, he was a priest by the name of Martin Luther, and on October 31st in the year 1517, that's in the early 16th century, okay, he just got fed up with what was happening in the church, and so he, he writes out what we call 95 theses or they're just statements that said this has got to stop, this has got to stop, this has got to stop, this has got to stop. And he nails them on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. He nails them up there and kind of draws a line, a big old line in the sand and the Protestant Reformation began. Now I know, okay, I know the Pope has been here and we're all kind of in that deal. But this was, this was um, really the beginning of something wonderful. Those theses that he wrote there set forth Luther's, Luther's disagreements with certain practices of the Roman Catholic Church of his era. Uh, he considered himself until death to be a loyal priest of the church. But his study of the scriptures had given him a new understanding of the Christian life and he just couldn't put up with it anymore. So despite his avowed loyalty to the church, he was persecuted by both the church and the state. He was given a chance to recant his views. He appears before a general assembly of the estates of the Holy Roman Empire in 1521. So this is four years later. Luther says, sorry guys, I gotta take my stand with the scripture. He ensured that he would continue to be persecuted when he said this. Here we go. Ready? I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. His is a story of changing history as a result of a conscience, not just a conscience that was informed by any news program or reading the newspaper, okay? His conscience was informed by the scriptures. And it got him hurt. And it changed the world. And it changed your life and mine. Uh, The issue here in Luther's day was the same as in Peter and John's day. Those that were standing in front of me were commanding me to do something that was contrary to what the Scriptures taught me and contrary to what God had told me. And so I've got to say no. And so... It wasn't that they ignored the council's command. They just couldn't do it. Now, Bob, can I get you to slip down to verse 33? What was their response? How? The question is, how mad were they? <laughs> mad enough to kill. They're not gonna do it here. Why? Because, and I, I wrote this a couple of references for you, um, um, they can't, according to John, uh, John 18, 31, they don't have the right, they don't have the the um the authority governmentally to put anybody to death. But by the way, just real quickly, turn with me over to chapter 7. Okay? All right, they couldn't put anybody to death. The Romans had to do that in Jesus' case. All right, but in chapter seven, that didn't really stop them. Look at verse fifty-four. This is mob rule. Now, when they'd heard this, they were talking about Stephen's message. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. But and and literally, they're so they're mad enough there to kill, and they do kill. Okay, so. They're not allowed to put anyone to death for for an ecclesiastical offense. But by chapter 7, they do it anyway. Look at, go with me to John 16, verse 2. Listen to what Jesus says about this. Jesus isn't surprised by much. Okay? Jesus is watching this from heaven, and he's certainly watching the execution of Stephen by mob rule from heaven. How do we know this? Paul was there. Luke records it. How does Jesus, is Jesus watching Stephen being stoned? How do we know that? Because uh, Luke records that when Steve, when Stephen is dying, he says, I see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. All right? Look at, at uh, Luke 16. Somebody read the first couple of verses. Mine is in red, by the way. That means Jesus said it. Did I tell you, John? I'm looking at Luke. You need to be looking at John. Yeah, John sixteen two. Somebody got it. There's time coming when when they kill you, they'll be thinking they're doing God a favor. Who said that? Jesus. Can you take what he said to the bank? Yes. Is it happening already? It's beginning. They haven't put anybody to death yet, but they're getting ready to do something almost as bad. And by chapter 7, they have put somebody to death. And it goes from there. It's going to continue all the way through. If you read from Acts through Revelation, we're going to read about people being put to death for their faith. He was given authority to arrest. He was not given authority to put to death, as I understand it. He, he was kind of the the DA in this thing, you know. But they had, they were on a short leash. They couldn't they couldn't um, even if it was an ecclesiastical offense like like Saul was accusing people of. They couldn't put them to death. You remember, in, even in the crucifixion scene, they had to, they had involved the Romans because they couldn't do it. By Acts 7, it's mob rule. We're done. We're so ticked. We're going to put a guy to death anyway. Okay? That's what they did. I, how angry were they? They were mad enough to kill. Over what? Over Bob the name. <laughs> I find that just intriguing as all get up. Now, Cindy, I see your bright face. Would you mind to read the next little section for us? Go to 34 and read down through 39. <laughs> okay, an unlikely ally here. we got, we got to deal with this. Now, remember, this is a very volatile, pregnant moment. Okay, all right, word pregnant's appropriate here. It was about to erupt, okay? And, um, and so somebody among them, one of the 70 stands up. His name is Gamaliel. Let's, let's discover a little bit about him. Uh, what I want you to put on your, on your passage here is that everyone listens when Gamaliel speaks. Okay, he was the E.F. Hutton of his day. Remember those commercials? I just I wish they would come back. Is it, but is there an E. F. Hutton anymore? I don't know. Maybe there isn't one. Uh, but you remember, if my broker is E. F. Hutton and E. F. Hutton says, and everybody leans in, okay, that's what happens when Gamaliel speaks. Now there's a reason for that. He was not only—I did a little research on him. He was the most respected Jewish scholar of his time, most respected rabbi of his time. So that that's kind of enough. Uh, to say there, but the truth is, he is one of two great rabbis in history that's still often quoted, okay? Gamaliel and Hillel. And it's interesting that Hillel, uh, and, and by the way, I looked at conflicting reports on this, but as far as I can tell, Hillel, who was um, up until Gamaliel's time the most respected, was Gamaliel's grandpa. So that's kind of in the genes, right? Um he lived about 110 BC, uh, Hillel lived the, the a former century, 110 BC to about AD 10, so right as Jesus was coming on the scene. Now Gamaliel is a Pharisee, he's a member of that sect, uh, and that group is known for its diligence in keeping the law in every detail. And among other things that, that Gamaliel has uh, as part of his pedigree is uh, he they would hand the most promising students to Gamaliel to train. The most promising students in the law, those who really had it together, those who they knew could really uh, make something of themselves. And if you go to Acts 22.3, you're going to read that one of his students was a guy by the name of Saul who later took on the name Paul. He was Paul's tutor, his teacher. Now, it's interesting here. As a leading member of the Sanhedrin, people are going to listen when he speaks. And he is one that's not going to rush to judgment. So he, in verse 35, as Cindy read it, advises caution. All right? He's going to say, hey, okay, push the pause button. Let's look at the big picture here. And they're listening to him. He recommends, in verse 36 and 37, he, he references Judas and another guy by the name of Judas, who came about uh, just about um, the turn of time. So, one of them would, would have been about 4 BC, the other one about 6 AD. And they both led small insurrections, uh, the latter bigger than the former. And both of them kind of claimed to be something, and uh, it came to nothing. Uh, Judas, in particular, the one that's referenced here, is a guy that um, uh, mounted several thousand followers. And it had to do with, interestingly, in AD 6, it had to do with taxation. It was Herod care they were fighting, okay? and uh, or, or maybe Augustus care, you know, or something like that. But um, you remember that whole story in Luke 2 where it says they were, they were sent to be for, for a census, and the census had to do with taxation? This guy got ticked about that, put an insurrection together, and it went quite a ways, but he was killed and everybody scattered. So that's, he kind of says, don't overreact. He recommends against overreaction. And he advises the council then. I, 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 this is interesting how he advises the council. Let's, let's read verse 38 again. So in the present case, he says, I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone. For if this plan or actions is of men, it will be overthrown. He basically says to them, okay, I'm going to stretch this probably further than it should be stretched, but okay, you know, I'm a preacher. All right? The church numbers more than 10,000 by now. It may be that it numbers 10,000 men and their families. That could be 30,000 or more. The church has grown meteorically. It's larger than any of these other two things that they have put down, Right? And he basically says, and here's what here's what I'm going to kind of plant in your head. He says, basically to the gathered Jewish leaders, just ignore the church. <laughs> Why don't you just ignore the church? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? When can the world ignore the church? Uh, okay, that the Holy Spirit blew that one across my brain Friday, and I'm thinking, oh, it sent a chill up of my mind. When can the world ignore the church? I can think of several answers, but the best one I could come up with was when the church has nothing to say, Guys, I don't want to get there. If the church gets to the point where we no longer have anything to say. Estelle, I was with people this week. We were talking about the sale of a church that you know about. We're talking about what they're going to do next. And basically, the dear old saint was really upset about that. And it's like, okay. And I begin to think, okay, does the church no longer have anything to say? I want to tell you something. According to our friend Gamaliel, who is a really smart cookie. You can ignore the church as long as it really has nothing to say. Let them talk about whatever they want to talk about. But watch out if they really do have something to say. You won't be able to stop it. And he was certainly prophetic here. Verse 39 It's interesting. It sounds like he's speaking out in defense of Christianity. Don't fool yourself here. Okay, he says if it's it's of God, you can't speak against it. And that sounds like he's in league with the church. Ain't no way, okay? He is speaking out not in defense of Christianity, but in defense of practicality. The practical thing to do is to let it go. Jump with me down as we close this, down to verse 40. And I want to read down to verse 42. Now remember, the E.F. Hutton in the room has said, leave him alone. It'll come to nothing unless it really is something. So what do they do? Remember, they're mad. Look at verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Now, I find that really intriguing. Don't miss that. You hear me? That cost them a lot. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Come on. And then released them. Now, okay, they've been threatened and released, they've been imprisoned and released. Now they've been beaten. Read about a flogging. I put a reference there for you, Deuteronomy twenty-five. It ain't fun, okay? They've been flogged, so don't you suppose Peter and John gets the other guys together and say, "Okay, we, we got to do a new strategy here. This is hurting." Look at verse forty-one. So they went on their way in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. In other words, they said, you know what? Jesus got beaten, and guess what? I did too. Now, were they happy about that? No, but they were rejoicing. That's a different, that's a richer word. They were joyful. They were rejoicing, saying, you know what? It's okay. If he can go through it, I can go through it. And every day, how often? Every day. In the temple, where? Right back where they got arrested. And from house to house. So in the daytime, they were in the temple, reasoning with people, teaching about Jesus, preaching about Jesus. At night, they were inviting you to homes and saying, let, me, let us explain this to you. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What goes in your last blank there is their response was to rejoice. Oh, by the way, the disciples are released, but not passively. I, I, I just find this heinous. You know, Gamaliel says, let them go. Let them go. They let them go, but they beat them first. It wasn't a passive release. And their response was to rejoice and to continue to obey God. Now, Eric Metaxas is a writer that I'm really enjoying reading. His uh, his 600-page book or whatever on... um, On Dietrich Bonhoeffer is is just a wonderful read. It took me most of a year to work through it and then work back through it. If you've never picked it up, you ought to. Uh, It's just called Bonhoeffer. But it was talking about a saint, um, certainly a perfect example of what we're talking about here in in, um, civil disobedience during the time of of Hitler's Germany. But he wrote a book in 2013 uh, called Persecuted, the Global Assault on Christians. Eric Metaxas asserts that Christians are the single most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. Many sources, including the highly respected Pew Research Center, offer evidence leading to this conclusion. So far in this century, the targeting of Christians for church burnings, torture, and outright murder has occurred in Kenya, in Egypt, in Pakistan, in Syria, and in Indonesia, and if your paper reads like mine, and in Oregon. What am I going to do with that? What am I going to do in this environment? Can I tell you this? I believe Gamaliel was right. The church will come to nothing as long as it has nothing to say. But you and I do have something to say. I pray for a generation of leaders to rise up, who are not afraid to say what has to be said, informed by Holy Scripture, being willing, whatever it takes, to say what needs to be said to our generation. Here's my question. Will you join me? Will you join me? You know what? I'm almost 60 years old. They want to take me out. That's okay. But I got a lot more to say. Will you join me? Bless you. Would you this week read, start at about chapter six and read about till 11. That'll give you some perspective on what we're gonna deal with next week, okay? All right, see you next week, thanks.